Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, as Paul's team is sharing the gospel in Philippi, a demon-possessed slave girl follows them everywhere, polluting their message, until finally, Paul is forced to take action. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 21. The title of the message is, Serving Through Suffering. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. Well, the gospel has finally made it to Europe. Having followed the Lord's leading to Philippi, Paul and his team, they now have a base of operations in the home of their new sister in Christ, Lydia. And while Philippi becomes Paul's crown and joy as a church, the enemy is going to try to crush it right here in the beginning. Trouble seems to follow Paul a lot, doesn't it? It does. It seems to follow Paul around. You ever feel like it's following you? Kind of like the Charlie Brown character who has the cloud wherever he goes. Well, obviously the Lord doesn't want us to court trouble by being obnoxious, but Jesus promised that we would have trials in this world. And the good news is that the Lord is working even in the midst of those trials. Jesus is still working. That's the whole theme of the book of Acts, right? He's still working in the midst of our trials. And so as we see the Lord rescue a few individuals here in the book of Acts, here at Philippi, through the suffering of Paul's team, may I encourage us to persevere knowing that Jesus is always working no matter our circumstances. So chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 16. Remember Paul, his base of operations now is Lydia's home. As they're reaching out there, they've got a few people who have come to the Lord. And so verse 16, it says, And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So it came to pass as we went to prayer, verse 16, the, the place of prayer is what that means, probably by the Ganges River there in Philippi. We don't know how close this event that goes on here is related to the first Sabbath where Lydia gets saved. So it could be they just held their services there by the river or they were still trying to reach the Jewish folks that went out to pray there by the river. But either way, this is where the early church in Philippi would gather is by the river there. And as they're heading there to this place of prayer, a certain damsel, a young slave girl, who was possessed with a spirit of divination, met us. So as they're on their way, this little girl comes and meets them. They're kind of joins their entourage on the way. This would be your teenage or preteen daughter. Now, it mentions here that she is possessed, which I'll get to in a moment, but she was also a slave girl because she was brought her masters. She had masters much gained by her soothsaying. Now, what I think is so important to understand is that while she was just property to these men, she is not a nameless, faceless little girl to God. She's a certain girl, one who is known and loved by him. God absolutely hates slavery. It's part of the economic destruction that God will bring when he judges Babylon in Revelation 18, when he judges our economic system in our world. It talks about how it enslaves the souls of men, but then it talks about how they traffic in the bodies of men as well. God hates every bit of it. There's not anything about it that he likes. 
You say, wait a second, what about some of the Old Testament passages that talk about servants? Well, there's a few things we need to understand. Number one, the way that things were run in that time were a lot different than in our time. Even the phrase servant was very different when we understand it. Most of those people were indentured servants who were trying to work off debt. And oftentimes when they would work off their debt, they'd be allowed to go free. In Israel, every servant had to be freed every seven years, no matter what your debt was. But see, without that context, you just pick one verse out of its context and say, and if your slave or if your servant does this, and then people say, oh, God's for slavery. No. God is ever for anything that enslaves us. And he even desires us to be willing bondservants, right? Those who have chosen to indenture themselves to the Lord. We are his servant. God hates it. And he loves this little girl and he wants to set her free because she has a problem. It mentions here that she was possessed with a spirit of divination. Now, real quickly, I want to cover this before we move any further, but the enemy as Christians, he can oppress us from without, but no Christian can ever be indwelt or under the control of a demonic spirit. There are zero examples of born-again believers being indwelt by a demon in the Bible. 1 John 4, verse 4 is very clear. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It doesn't say greater is he that is in us than he that is in a different part of us, okay? That's not what it says. Greater is he that is in us, and I'm going to give you a paraphrase, that he that is not in us, okay? That's what that means, he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in us than he that is not in us, okay? The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same place. So as Christians, we cannot be indwelled by demonic forces. Now the enemy forces can oppress us from the outside and the Bible talks about that. It talks about what Satan did to Job. It talks about how Paul, God permitted the enemy to buffet Paul through this thorn in the flesh, which was a messenger of Satan, the Bible says. So we can be oppressed or attacked by the enemy, but never controlled or indwelt. In fact, the Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is what? Self-control, right? Self-control. So I can yield my life to him. Now this little girl, it says that she was possessed with a spirit of divination, or if you have a different translation, it might say a spirit of python. And this was a Greek idiom that meant she was a fortune teller. Um, The mythical Python was considered to have given the supernatural fortunes to the Oracle of Delphi in Greek mythology. And Apollo was, was, the Oracle of Delphi was in a cave and this snake was to, this Python guarded the cave in Greek mythology. And Apollo came down and slew the beast and used the spirit of this Python to control the Oracle. And so this person would usually be a worshiper of Apollo and they would be considered to be under this the influence or control of this python spirit. So uh, someone possessed with this python spirit would convulse and oftentimes speak with a different voice to show they were under the power of this uh, extremely powerful entity. And so this demon-possessed girl comes to Paul, meets his entourage as they're on their way, his team as they're on the way to this place of prayer by the river. And as they're walking there, she's crying out over and over again, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So she's making this public proclamation, this demon-possessed girl that everyone in there knows, they've had their fortunes told by her, and she's made a lot of money for her masters through her fortune-telling. They recognize her, and she's announcing these guys are the servants of the Most High God. Now, you say, well, 
That's some good PR at least, right? The problem is this though, literally, it says that she says, which show unto us, not the way of salvation, but in the Greek, it says a way of salvation. So she's not good PR. It's interesting. Satan has no problem with you going to church. No problem at all. There's no problem with you thinking Jesus is a way to get to heaven. That's cool with him. Because if we believe that Jesus is only a way, then we won't ever try to persuade someone who finds a different way of salvation to change. Now, Jesus did not claim to be a way, a truth, and a life, but he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And that is vastly different than what this little girl is saying. Which brings up the question, what percentage of wrong teaching need to be false? How much of a percent does it need to be off to be false? How many times does a prophet get to mess up before he's a, or she is a false prophet? Once. Once. That's the rule in Deuteronomy. If you do it wrong once, the Bible says you're not to fear that man and you're not to listen to that man. It's very simple. We have prophets all throughout our country who claim to be these spokesmen for God and they utter false prophecies all the time. And they'll say, well, we're pretty good. We're better than, you know, the, the psychic hotline. This is why false teaching is generally 90% truth. It wouldn't be very deceptive if it looked completely different than the truth. Satan usually does not show up as a guy with a pitchfork and a spiked tail. The Bible says he shows up as what? An angel of light. And his ministers have transformed themselves into what? Ministers of light as well. They look like light. So this woman, she's saying this day after day, verse 18, and this she did many days. I'm gonna tell you what, I give Paul kudos for being way beyond the call of graciousness because I am absolutely convinced our ushers would have tackled her on that first day. I mean, if she had gotten up and started saying, listen to this guy right here, he is speaking a way of salvation, she'd just be doomed. She wouldn't even get out. She'd be down on the ground and they'd be dragging her out. Could you imagine day after day of this shouting? And yet Paul deals with it. And something else I think is interesting. Remember how the people tried, at Lystra tried to worship Paul and Barnabas? Remember they tried to make them turn them into gods, try to turn them into rock stars? But here's another opportunity for Paul to take the spotlight. Go, man, she's really pumping us up. These guys are the servants of the most high God. I mean, that's a pretty illustrious title. We're the ones he picked. We're the ones he chose. We're his anointed. All he had to do was compromise just a wee tad away. I can fix that later on. Thankfully, he doesn't. It mentions here that she did this for many days. Paul being grieved. The word here, it means that when somebody works so hard on you, grates so hard on you, that you become worn out by it, that you're so annoyed that you finally do something. <laughs> this was weighing so heavily on his heart that he just couldn't continue the gig. He could not continue letting this happen. Well, now, why did she weigh heavy on Paul's heart? Well, there's a few reasons in my mind. First off, like I said, she's pointing to them, not Jesus. Jesus isn't mentioned at all. She's pointing to them, not Jesus. And I think that would make things very awkward for Paul and for his team. It's always very awkward when someone will give any praise to me, great sermon, or, or like, wow, you know, you just really know how to teach the Bible or anything like that. That's very awkward. What do you even say to that? That'd be like me talking to the microphone and going, wow, you did such a good job today. You are amazing. I, I have never, I've never spoken into a mic like you before. You would never do that because it's a tool. It's just a tool. 
the real instrument is the Lord, of course, who's speaking. I'm trying to think of the gentleman. He's a famous violinist. And apparently he had gotten this amazing violin that was made for him. And everywhere he'd play, everyone would praise the violin. And so finally at one concert, he was playing with the violin and he said, isn't this a gorgeous violin? And they were, oh yeah, and smashed it on the ground. And then he brought out this old rickety violin and then he just made amazing music with it. And of course everyone stood because the idea is the violin was getting all the PR and he didn't like that, so... You know how musicians are, so. The same way. I think that was awkward for Paul. Be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I, don't want, I don't want that kind of attention on me and our team. Secondly, because she wasn't preaching the full truth. And that would be very, very confusing. Can you imagine having to explain to every person that what you're saying is different than what she's saying? What's this way of salvation? Well, it's not a way, it's the way. Well, yeah, you need to leave your gods behind. You need to follow Jesus. Huh? It was a different message, a very different message. People don't have a problem with you going to church. They don't have a problem with you reading the Bible and doing a Christian thing and being nice to people. Just don't tell them they have to stop sinning. Just don't tell them they have to repent. Don't tell them that they have to get saved. That's when we run into problems. But three, and I think this was the one that probably weighed on them the most. She is a slave in every way, in bondage to her masters and in bondage to the devil. And Paul's job was to preach freedom Freedom, and yet this shackled woman is following him every single day. She needed Jesus, and as such, he felt like it was time to take action. And so he turned, and I love, he spoke to the Spirit, not to her. This was not her fault. He spoke to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And that demon came out that moment. That same hour, it means immediately. Just like when Jesus did things, came out. Now you say, well, that's kind of weird, Will. Demon possession? I mean, that sounds like something that that goes on in movies that I don't go watch. Do demons possess unbelievers sometimes? Assuredly. It was a part of Jesus's ministry. Peter did it in Acts chapter five, and now we see Paul doing it. And I've encountered people that I'm pretty sure were demon possessed. I remember when I was working at Taco Bell as a teenager and a college student, and we had this one guy, I remember his name, but he was, he was freaky, <laughs> okay? And, and he had this kind of glazed over look in his eyes. And, and it was funny. He talked to me about the Bible all the time, but it was always weird. It was always kind of this strained version of Christianity and whatnot and, and weird and amalgamated with other stuff. And I remember one day, I, I was a shift manager there, and one day I was kind of just walking down the line and all of a sudden he's, he's just there and making the food and he just goes, rawr, and swings at the girl next to him. And it took about six of us to hold this guy down. And, I, and he's just going, and she's sad, you know, that I've blasphemed and I'm going to hell. And, and now this girl, she's like, boy, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I never say a word to you, you know? And it, showed, it was just weird. It was just all weird. But I remember thinking when I, I saw that guy, I'm like, that dude's possessed. And uh, so I, I believe I've encountered people like that. I have a friend of mine, he said he used to have a guy that walked in this neighborhood and, and uh, he didn't know his name, but he called him Mr. D because he'd walk up to him every time and just be like, you know, just look at him. But my friend, what he would do is he would walk around in his neighborhood and he'd pray. He'd pray for the people in the neighborhood, pray for the church, pray for the people involved in his life. And every time he'd go out walking, this guy would be there and he'd just kind of growl at him and stuff and, you know, kind of make faces at him. And, uh, hey, Jesus said casting out demons would be part of the miraculous signs that would follow other believers. That's what he said. I think we tend to see less of it in our culture because of our Judeo-Christian roots. I really do. Talk to some people, though, that have had an occult-type upbringing, and they'll have some interesting stories for you. Really interesting. 
Well, he came out that same hour, this wonderful, precious girl that God had made was now free. But not everybody was happy, verse 19. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and they drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And they brought them before the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. All they cared about was the money. It was almost like Paul had come into their shop and broken a tool of the trade and now they're demanding reparation. I don't have a lot of patience for men who look at women or children as things. Very little. God designed us to protect the weak and the innocent, not to oppress them. And if you are abusing your wife, if you're abusing your children, you need to repent. You need to repent. I remember there were times the Lord put in my heart to talk about things like adultery or abuse. And I think, Lord, I know the people in my church. Nobody's doing something like that. And lo and behold, every time someone would come and they say, I need to talk to you. If you're doing that, listen, there's forgiveness, there's grace. But the Bible's very clear that if, if you are causing one of those little ones to stumble, it's better for you to put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the ocean. The best thing to do is to repent, to stop. They are not yours to do with as you please. They are not a thing that you own. They're precious creations of God that he loved and that he died for. In our lives, very often we will make partnerships with things that are vile because of the benefits that they bring to us. And how many demons do we partner with? Because we know getting rid of that behavior will also get rid of its benefits. I want to encourage you today, if you've partnered with some things that you've justified as okay because of what it brings into your life or the benefits that you have at your business, it's time to stop, to walk with the Lord, to provide all things honest in his sight. God will take care of you. He will watch over you. He will bless you. He will help you. Well, these men, they dragged them. That's what they were drew their men's. That means they dragged them. They physically, the idea of dragging implies resistance that, you know, Paul and Silas were putting up a bit of a fight here, but so they had to have probably been beaten up pretty bad to be drugged into the marketplace. And so the marketplace in that time period would be the town's social gathering center. Uh, magistrates and judges would set up court as well as all the businesses that would have their, their shops and their wares for sale there. And these businessmen bring them right into the middle of the marketplace to the magistrates, to these leaders. And it says that they said, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Now the magistrates here, the word here is actually the stratagems, usually referred to the leaders of an army. But remember, Philippi is a military colony. So it would have had a military governor, which is maybe why they felt more pride in their military title than the one that would normally be used by a governor, which would be like a praetor or something like that, like Pontius Pilate used. And the accusation is simple. It's two things. Number one, they're trying to start a riot. That's what it means they've tried to trouble our city. In verse 20, it mentions they do exceedingly trouble our city. They are trying to start a riot. Now, people often refer to the Pax Romana as this wonderful, prosperous, peaceful time period in civilization. 
God, however, has a very different view of the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, you can write it down if you're taking notes. I'm just going to read it real quickly. But in Daniel 2, 40, God says this, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and crush. That was God's view of the Pax Romana. That was his view of the Roman Empire. If there's anything Rome hated, it was rebellion. And to be accused of starting a riot was one of the most heinous of offenses you could be accused of and carried the most stiff of penalties. But the second accusation is that they're forcing us to obey laws we don't have to, verse 21. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us or we're not required to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now remember, most of the people living in Philippi would be military folk and their families. And despite being a world away, they consider themselves Italians, okay? They consider themselves to be Romans. We are free. Nobody tells us what to do except our country. So you're not gonna bring these different ideas into our city. So the charge levied against Paul and Silas is that they're forcing free Romans to do something they're not obligated to do. And in particular with the Emperor Claudius, as we'll see in chapter 18 of Acts, having just expulsed all the Jews from all Roman cities, it would be a negative thing for them to be called Jews, okay? Now, I think it's fascinating that they're charged with saying they're trying to tell us to do stuff that we don't have to do because isn't that the charge placed against Christians today in our country? We preach Jesus as the only way or we stand up for what is moral and right by proclaiming what is immoral and wrong and we're told we're trying to force our views upon others, don't we? You hate gay people because you don't, you're not for gay marriage. You hate this group of people because you're this. But really, how far logically can you take that? What if someone is attempting murder? Is it wrong for me to tell them to stop? Well, our legal system has laws about that. Yeah, but what if they're not righteous laws? As far as I'm concerned, in our country, it's legal to murder certain kinds of people. People that can't defend themselves. Would it be wrong for me to intervene if I see someone doing that? What if someone someday tries to legalize marriage between a man and a child? Am I supposed to keep silent because my moral outlook on that topic is based only on my faith? You say, well, now you're getting stupid. Don't even say something like that. That will never happen. And you hear people say that. You, you Christians are always worried about the slippery slope. Really? It already is. ISIS is doing it. They take little girls that they have captured from other countries and they force them to marry their men. 11-year-old girls have to marry these perverts. And they justify it based on their moral point of view. All law is based on some kind of morality. Just sometimes it's based on the wrong kind of morality. Everyone has a source of their morality somewhere, even if that source is themselves, which I would believe to be the most idiotic form of morality. <laughs> because if you would say that, then you're saying, I am the one who knows everything. I know all the things that are right and good, and you don't. So therefore, I'm the one that determines what is good and right. Doesn't it seem to make a little bit more sense to appeal to someone who is a higher power who would understand what morality is, who would have all knowledge? That seems to make more sense to me, but I'm closed-minded and ignorant. In many other cultures, sexual abuse of children is perfectly legal. Not a problem whatsoever. Understand this. Whenever we talk about sin, sinners are going to feel uncomfortable, okay? They're going to. That's just how it is. 
Now, if they respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who's making them uncomfortable, then they'll often respond favorably to you. Even if they don't agree with you, they'll be like, okay, I see where you're coming from. And there are plenty of unbelievers out there who fall into that category. I have plenty of unbelievers I can have a conversation with and we do not share views at all. They're an atheist and I'm not, but we talk about things and they understand where I'm coming from. They're not belligerent or whatever. But if they don't respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, if they're not open, then they're gonna get angry. Because if you're right, then they have to admit their behavior shouldn't continue. And since they can't see the Holy Spirit who's trying to bring them to repentance, who are they going to lash out at? You. You're the one they see. That's all the time we have for today. Tomorrow we will learn how to respond to these kinds of false accusations and persecution. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.